I'm wondering how many of you were here back in 1998, the very first one. One. Barry, were you here? No, I thought it was 1999. Maybe it was. It's 21 years, right? It was 1999. 1999. And you came the second year? Yeah. Okay. So, we're, we only have one or two. Some of you young people, weren't you here in your infancy? Or whatever it would have been? <clears throat> um, yeah. 21 years. It's interesting that uh, what God has done over those years. It was such a, a blessing to find out that we could get a hold of a facility like this when we start working on on the um, Focus Family Week. And uh, yeah, what God gives, He doesn't give us just a, just enough. He gives us something that's plentiful beyond what we would have to have. And it's it's been a blessing over the years. Barb and I have been able to attend, <clears throat> or my family has been able to attend for most of the last 13 years. So uh, it's just a joy to be back with you. We were here two years ago, <clears throat> but um, last year we're not able to be here. Now our schedule is kind of opened up, so we hope to be able to attend a little more regularly in the future. So, what are imps and idols? Um, <clears throat> where are they? <clears throat> um, that's going to be our subject today. I'd like to talk more about the foundational uh, impact of becoming a believer, of becoming a Christian, having Christ move in to our lives. And, and so I trust that that's the experience of most of you, if not all of you, um, but sometimes we have a little misunderstanding or maybe some major misunderstandings about really what took place. And because of that, we continue to stumble along in our Christian lives kind of wondering, who am I? Am I really saved? Why do I struggle with all these temptations and so forth that I'm constantly wrestling with if I'm a believer? And so uh, today in our session, we'd like to just think about what happened and what continues to happen because you are a Christian or because of your salvation, um, the foundational change that happened when you became a believer. Now, I have a paper here, and I'm going to <clears throat> pass it out. It's not. Uh, it's basically just a, a piece of paper in front of you that you can write down anything you want to. But most of the, especially the the back side of it is um, references and so I'm giving this to you so that you can use it in your your devotional time throughout this week or some other time later on uh, uh, next week or next month or next year and and just to read through these and study them and and see the context of what God is saying about the different things that are taking place in our life Initially and in an ongoing way as as Christians. So, um, can I have a couple of volunteers? You didn't bring a pen or pencil? Uh, I don't know if there's any around here or not. Borrow your neighbors or... Um, bring one along tomorrow. We'll have a sheet like this in each of our sessions for you to, to write in. <clears throat> All right. Um, <clears throat> some of you guys are involved in construction and building homes and so forth. Have you ever had any difficulty trying to figure out <clears throat> what the difference is between a septic tank and a pressure tank? Don't have any trouble with that one, right? Um, the, the septic tank is significantly different than the pressure tank. Do you have any trouble, ladies, figuring out the difference between a, a, a beautiful wood carving and ashes? Any, any trouble determining which is which? 
You don't have much trouble with that, right? You can tell the difference. Can you tell the difference between the old man and the new man? Old man and new man. Sometimes, you know, we have we have difficulty knowing what was the old man and what is he still around? Uh, is he still involved in my life? What's the new man? And is there a difference between these two? What is the difference between them? Um, so, thank you. All right. We'll try to make sure we have enough of those. Look, like we have a few extras. Um, what's the difference between these two? Um, on the top of your your page, there you have two hearts. The one on the left hand side up there on top. We want to develop that in just a little bit. But what we're going to do each of our sessions is we're going to start out by quoting this together and then sing a song that relates to the changes that are happening in your and my life as we walk with with Christ. So let's stand together and um, read this together. Alright, together. How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death, so that we may serve the living God. All right, let's uh, let's sing this song together. I think most of you young people should know it. You take off with it, uh, and so we can all learn it if we don't know it. <clears throat> Change my heart, O oh God, make it ever new. Change my heart, O oh God, may I be like you. Take that high part that helps us keep the uh, tempo right. Change my heart, oh God, make it ever new. Cleanse my heart, oh God, may I be like you. that a septic tank is somewhat characteristic of what our heart was like before we became believers, before we uh, accepted the Lord Jesus Christ as our Savior. In Philippians chapter 3, verse 8, it says that Paul was counting all that he had done religiously and in his life before he knew Christ as what? As dross, or he even used a more term. At least some of the the uh, versions use a term that's even kind of more uh, dung, dung. Yeah, it's dross, dung. It's like it was the filth. It was the manure. It was the dung 
of his life before he knew Christ. He says, Yea, doubtless, and I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and do count them but dung, that I may win Christ. So, <clears throat> where does dung go? Where does dross go in our house? It goes out through the septic uh, lines out to the septic tank. And <clears throat> he's saying that what he had before was like, um, uh, it was like dung. And what we tend to do before salvation is we're constantly adding stuff to our lives and it goes out into this holding place that where it, it um, rots, smells, is stinky. How many of you have ever been, uh, ever seen the inside of your septic tank? It's not something you enjoy doing, right? That's why you hire the honey, honey wagon or whatever they call that thing to come and empty it because it's full of black, gooky, stinky, smelly stuff that you just want to stay away from. Uh, and that's what Paul is saying. All my past has been like a dung. It's like that junk that's in the, the septic tank. A horrible place. Dung goes in the septic tank. It's the receptacle for all those wasted things that we were trying to grasp a hold of, collect and, and keep for ourselves that continues to rot and smell and stink because they don't produce the beauty that God wants us to experience. It's not capable of doing that. And so, <clears throat> I'd like to look at here quickly is five things that are were wrong with you, that was wrong with me, before Jesus came in to transform our lives. What were the five things um, <clears throat> that were wrong with us? Because I indulged the appetite that I inherited from from Adam and I pursued sinful, selfish pleasure as my supreme goal in life. I'm in control of my life. I'm on the throne room of my life. I'm going to decide what's good for me. I'm going to decide what I don't want. That was what was running me before. And I've destroyed my potential to experience the joy and fulfillment and, and the connectedness with God's unique plan for my life. Uh, I struggle with the guilt of having done those things as well as the ongoing sense of appetite, living with the shame of condemnation and all of that, I know something's wrong with me, but what is it? Let's look at, at five things. You might have more, um, uh, but we'll put them into these five categories and uh, look at some of the things that are wrong with us. Number one, the first thing is what I have done. What I have done. For just a, I'm just going to pause for a little bit. I would like to have you recall and maybe just write a couple of words on the uh, up there on your sheet, um, right behind that particular phrase. Bring to mind an incident of selfishness that you were in, that you did, or you were involved in before you were born again. Just is between you and the Lord an incident of selfishness. If you just write that on that line, um, beyond that line. Okay, just give that a thought. For, uh, give that thought for a, a little bit. incident that comes to my mind um, when I was about 8 or 9 maybe 10 years old I was driving our B. John Deere back to um, our place pulling two wagon loads of hay that my dad and uh, a friend had loaded up and as I'm coming past what is now Dawson's place um, the lady that was living there 
was walking out toward the road as I'm going pop, 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 going by when this uh, B. John Deere. And um, as, I, as we went past the place, I waved at her. But she didn't wave back. And so I'm wondering, why didn't she wave? And as I'm heading down the road, uh, not looking where I'm going, looking at this lady, I got off to the side of the road far enough that I was headed for the ditch. But just in time, I jerked the tractor back again, but not in time to keep the first wagon from going down far enough in the ditch that the whole load dumped into the ditch. I don't know what you'd have done as an 8 or 9, 10 year old to explain to your dad what happened. Uh, this is what I came up with. Okay, I said there was a turtle coming across the road and I was trying to get around the turtle. and dumped her. I didn't want to tell dad that I was mad at that lady because she hadn't waved at me. I, so I had this other excuse and they couldn't find any turtle tracks but and we couldn't find the turtle either. But they accepted my story. Um, at least they didn't challenge it at that point. But I lived with a guilty conscience, I think for about six months. I'm not sure how long it was that I had told a lie and never made it right. Until finally one day I couldn't handle it anymore and I went to my dad and with my neighbor and and went to the, the lady and asked her forgiveness for my lie. Um, years later, when I was pastoring the church, this lady gave me a photo of me standing on the drawbar of the John Deere tractor with this overturned load, and she had pasted uh, a, little, a little turtle on the corner of the picture. And I still have that in my office just to remind me what I've done, our lies, uh, all the different expressions that we give to selfishness through our acts and deeds and attitudes and so forth. Generally, this particular category throughout Scripture is talked about in the plural because there's many of them. You know, we have an accumulation of them. And that's one of the big problems in our lives. That we've got this accumulation of lies and bad attitudes and all those different things that uh, we've done and, and said in the past. So that's problem number one in our life. We have this, this backlog of things that are wrong. What's the second problem? <clears throat> the second problem is even deeper than this first problem. In fact, the second problem is what sponsors the first problem. If we didn't have the second problem, we could overcome the first problem. But with the second problem, we can never overcome the first problem. It would be impossible. And the second problem is that my deeds do not come out of a vacuum. The deeds that I did before I was born again came from who I was. It came from my very DNA. It came from my makeup. And I can't help but produce those kinds of things because it's an outgrowth of who I am. Sin just doesn't occur out of, a, out of a vacuum. It's always produced. It springs out of my personhood. It springs out of my spiritual DNA. It comes from my deepest core. So not only am I producing results that condemn me, but the core that produces those results is inextricably a part of my being. That's who I am. Who can deliver me from this? Paul cries out, Oh, wretched man that I am. Romans chapter 6 talks about the old man. We'll get to that a little bit more later. But um, this is really the, the root problem, the, the most basic problem before I know Christ. The third kind of springs from these two. You and I were designed by God to be like a light that walks around the community, walks around in our world, and reflects the, the, uh, the light of, of Christ. It's like a display case. 
a display case that has three different sides to it. One side is the way, that's your lifestyle. Second side is the truth, that's your doctrine, your belief system. And the third side is your life. It's your, your animation, your excitement, your zeal for the Lord. Those three are, are different parts of display that God wants the community to see through us. But before we knew Christ, our inner candle has no, no light on it. There's no, there's no flame. There's no Shekinah glory. There's nothing there. It's dark. No light within. No radiance. No joy. No inner smile. Um, no sense of transcendence. That life is bigger than this life. There's no sense of hope. And then fourthly, <clears throat> the fourth problem is what I desire. And what I desire is the, the is our flesh. It's the realm of desire, which that which we lust after and that which we flee from. And that's going to be kind of the meat of what we talk about this whole week. I've named that which we run after our idols. And that which we run away from is our imps. We don't like imps, we like idols. And uh, so... We're going to be talking more about that. But before salvation, it's the desire for gain as well as the dread of loss. It's the flesh is, is the key reality of how we handle this area of desire. Your spirit, that's the inner sanctuary of your heart. That's where the throne of your life is at. Um, that's where the king sits on his throne. It's in your spirit. Before salvation, you sat on that throne. I sat on my throne. I'm in charge of my life. Um, and, and so I'm in control. That's in the spirit. The, the next level around there is the soul. And this is the, the, um, the realm of desire and how we process desire through our intellect, through our emotions, and through our decisions. Again, we'll speak more about that later. And your body that I'm looking at this morning... Is um, is your the realm of, of your senses, uh, how you interact with with life around you? Incidentally, let me just back up a little bit. If um, if if your body made as much change as what your soul does or your spirit does, I'm sorry, your spirit. If your body made as much change as what your spirit does when you became a Christian, I doubt whether I could recognize you. It's the difference of a septic tank to a pressure tank. It's the difference of ashes to a beautiful wood carving. That's the kind of difference. So if I would be able... If you came... No, let me back up. If your body had as much change as what your spirit does when you became a Christian, I wouldn't recognize you. Probably wouldn't recognize you. Because it's so different. So much more beautiful. So much more powerful. Well, anyway, let's go on to the... the um, anybody want to guess at what the fifth thing is that's wrong with us? Nobody going to guess? It's our decaying body. Young people, you don't even think about this, but everybody from this side over, we all think about this. Um, <clears throat> our decaying bodies. We're wearing glasses, hearing aids, got somebody else's teeth, or at least somebody else's uh, uh, put them in there. Um, we, we can't feel as well, and all these kind of things. It's just a kind of a symbol of the condemnation that has come upon our our human race because of sin. So now let's go back to that um, that second. Well, let me look at let, let's look at this. Um, I don't think you have a lot of room to write this down. Just put out a few things that we've been talking about here. Our heart became oriented toward the devil when 
before or was oriented toward the devil before. Maybe even saying um, oriented toward me. Devil sounds really bad, but it's it's my um, uh, control of my life. So it became oriented toward the devil. We became more needy than worshipful. Previous to our salvation, we are dark internally. That's what we were mentioning there a little bit ago. We became ruled by the tyrant, or we became ruled by me. I am the one that's on the, king, the throne room of my life. In our mind, what happened to my mind as I was, uh, before I was a believer? What was going on there? We think from a basis of falsehood. We have believed the lie that God is not good. He's withholding good things from me. If I could make my own decision, then I could in, be involved with things that are good that he's withheld. That's exactly what Eve thought. She looked at this, that it's good for food. What's wrong with it? Why shouldn't I enjoy that? What is God withholding from me? Why doesn't he let me enjoy something good? And we all face the same question. We, we all wrestle with the same question. We think from a basis of falsehood. We operate more from doubt than we do from trust as in, in, our, in our mind. We, we doubt God's goodness. Um, we think our thinking is plagued with blind spots and we have this amazing ability to think logically to the wrong conclusions. So, our mind has been polluted by the rule of self. Our decision making, our will, the, the theological term is volition. What has happened to that? Well, we feel like we can't choose. I'm between a rock and a hard place. I can't make any choice. If I do this, this is going to happen. If I do that, that's going to happen. I can't make any choice. We feel locked in and we excuse ourselves because we don't feel like we have any choice secondly we feel more driven that kind of goes with the first one we feel more driven than free to make choice because certainly God wouldn't want me to die and so that's not an option and so we have to make some kind of compromise in order not to die many of our ancestors spiritually did take the choice to die and they stand as our examples today um, but in the flesh we don't see ourselves as having any option our goals are based on a wrong belief system that my good is ultimate and one of the biggest Characteristics is that we're marked by duplicity. We make this decision one day and then we make another decision the next day which is contrary to that decision and the back and forth. Why we're trying to weave our way through life with as little pain and as great pleasure as we can. And so we're, we're, we're um, making opposite commitments and, and um, decisions. In the area of our emotions, we have... They have been twisted in fear and in lust, by fear and by lust. Um, we are more self-absorbed than we are giving. We were more concerned about us than we are about you or someone else. And gratification and fear drive our decisions. Now, <clears throat> all of that is just to kind of describe who we were before. Now let's talk about what happens when you and I become believers. When we get to know the Lord Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, something dynamic happens. And I know many of us, myself included, being raised by godly parents and living in a, in quotes, godly environment, going to church nine months before I was born, uh, you know, the whole nine yards, I, I've had it all given to me. And so it's easy for me not to see myself as being this blatant sinner. That was where I had myself on the throne room of my life. You know, it was kind of uh, obscure in a sense until 
many years later, after you had made my initial decision, I began to realize that a lot of this junk was still there. A lot of confusion and, and darkness. And that's what we want to talk about this week, getting rid of that. So, this, what happens when you become a, a believer? Um, it says in, in Proverbs chapter 14, The fear of the Lord is the fountain of life. I'd like to have you just picture on that other heart there up in the upper right-hand side. Um, make that one look like this. Okay? It says that we are a fountain of life. And before our conversion, we were those takers on the left-hand side. We are the receivers. Um, and we looked to everyone around us to, to fill us with good things. But at conversion, the fountain of living water erupts like a geyser out of that former septic tank. It had been a septic tank, but now it has become a pressure tank because of Jesus Christ moving in to that, that inner sanctuary, that inner room. He's, it's now a pressure tank. The very essence of what we were has been supernaturally changed into something different. We've gone from ashes to beauty. We became the opposite of what we were. We became givers in contrast to being takers when we became believers. And not, not only is that tank a fountain, the very blocks have been transformed. Um, just imagine what would happen if you came home after this week of, of um, uh, focus and you got back to your house and somehow in the bottom of your septic tank out there in the backyard, a artesian well had sprung up inside that thing. And this thing has a tremendous amount of pressure, about 60 or 70 pounds uh, of pressure. And so while you're gone, your septic tank has become a pressure tank. What would your house look like when you get back? I think you'd probably kind of come back to focus for a while because every drain in your house would now be a fountain. And there would be this gray, stinky water all the way through your house. Downstairs would be a pool. It's running out the windows and doors. And this water is going all over the place. Your house is trashed. But your house just became a U.S. national park. Okay? This, is, this looks like something that we have out at Yellowstone. Why? Because something happened in your septic tank. Something changed in your septic tank. It's no longer a septic tank. It's now a pressure tank. Maybe that isn't the best illustration. You aren't going to be too excited about going to a house like that. But if you could sell your house for the three, four million dollars because it's now U.S. Then it maybe make a difference. I don't know. But uh, <clears throat> your home would be a, a, a national park. That's what really has happened in our hearts and souls. You know, <clears throat> the, the, the septic tank became a pressure tank. Jeremiah talks about this in the Old Testament. Chapter 2, verse 13. says, For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken the fountain you know, they went backwards. They went from the fountain back to a septic tank, or a cistern, as he calls it. A broken cistern that can hold no water. Salvation takes us the other way. It goes from this broken cistern to a, a pressure tank. In John, we have uh, Jesus talking about the same thing. He says, If any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. He that believeth on me, as the Scripture has said, out of his belly shall flow rivers... Not just one, different riverbeds of living water that are going out from your heart, your soul, going out and blessing other people. Rather than all coming in like a septic tank, it's going out to bless other people. Why? Because it's no longer that old man inside. It's the new man, Christ, that is now giving you the opportunity to bless people. You're not looking for all that blessing coming this way. You're giving it. Totally different Foundation. Proverbs chapter 4 says, Above all else, guard your heart, for it's the wellspring of life. 
wellspring of life. You know, <clears throat> I haven't been over to Israel. Some of you have been. But I understand that um, Jerusalem is something like 2,550 feet above sea level. And the, the, um, the Dead Sea is like 1,407 feet below sea level. So, you have in about 20-some miles, you have a drop of almost 4,000 feet from, from uh, Jerusalem to, to um, the Dead Sea. Almost 4,000 feet, a little over, uh, uh, or not, not quite a mile. Um, it's interesting in, in Ezekiel chapter 47 it talks about how that when when the Spirit of God went into the temple and again I'm using some, some um, a, a parable there that Ezekiel was using it describes a river that flows out of the temple now remember we are the temple of the living God right and we're going to get to that a little bit more later uh, we're the temple of the living God and there's there's water flowing out of the temple according to Ezekiel 47 and as they begin to measure it they go out it was a thousand cubits it was ankle deep at two thousand cubits it was knee deep at three thousand cubits it was waist deep and then at four thousand cubits it was something you couldn't swim in uh, from there on it was too it was too deep um, and then it says that that water goes out from under the door of the temple and let's just think that of that as being you going out of the door of, your, of the temple and it's going down into waste places, out into dead places, out into the desert. That's what you have back here in... Uh, oops, got too far here. Um, where you have back here in, in this area coming down to the Dead Sea that's all desert. And, and this water is flowing out and it's, it's creating life along the sides of the river. All the way through. That's what God's designed our lives to to be. The fruit trees and bank along the banks of the river, and makes the salty water fresh. I don't know for sure, but it almost sounds like one day God's going to take the Dead Sea that is now so dead uh, with with uh, with salt and so forth, and He's going to wash it and clean it up. Uh, maybe that's not going to happen physically. I don't know what all the prophecy means there, but it says in Ezekiel 37, uh, 47, that he's going to make the salty water fresh. Living creatures will abound. There's nothing living in that that uh, sea right now. It says they will abound. That just brings me to this song, which I think we need to sing, because this is what is happening in us. I've got a river of life flowing out of me. Makes the lame to walk and the blind to see. Opens prison doors, sets the captive free. I've got a river of life flowing out of me. Spring up a well within my soul. Spring up a well and make me whole. Spring up a well and give to me. should sing the rest of it, but we're going to keep going so we don't run out of time here. How does God remedy these problems that we have, those five things that we talked about earlier? You know, what does justification change? Does justification change the fact that you've got diabetes? Does it, it change your stomach problems? Uh, does it, it uh, uh, fix your heart problems? Maybe. But that's not really what we're focused on. Uh, does, does justification change your, um, or remove, obliterate your struggle with anger, or your struggle with slander, or your struggle with jealousy, or your struggle to avoid real issues? What does justification do? Does justification change your DNA? Does it change your ancestry? Does it change your citizenship? Does it change your identity? That's where justification really has its greatest impact. God doesn't necessarily redeem sin. That one problem, the first problem we talked about. No, He redeems us. And He doesn't forgive who we are. 
He forgives the sins we've, we've been involved in. So, I think it's important that we understand the difference in, in some of this. Um, so, going back to that first problem, what I've done, my sins, how does God, in quotes, fix this problem? Well, He says, you're forgiven. You're forgiven. Those are some of the most beautiful words that we can hear. Jesus Christ shed His blood on Calvary to forgive me and remove the penalty assigned to those sins. I am forgiven. You know, um, Romans chapter 3 says, God presented Him as a sacrifice for atonement through faith in His blood. He did this to demonstrate His justice because in His forbearance He had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. We're forgiven. We're forgiven. You know, Jesus asked us to forgive each other 70 times 7. That's how many? 490. We've got some mathematicians in here at least. 490 times. Now, if that's 490 times per day, because His, his grace is new every morning, His mercies are new every morning, so you've got a new store of the next morning, another 490 for the next day. If that's true for every day, that means about every two minutes throughout your waking hours, you're, you could come to Him and say, God, I'm sorry. I, I failed. Forgive me. He forgives. Two minutes later, God, I'm, I failed again. Please forgive me. All the way through the day. And He forgives. Brothers and sisters, His, his forgiveness is so lavish, so free, so abundant. It just is constant. It's just there every two minutes if you want to put it into, into time. In fact, it is so lavish that Paul, as he's finishing chapter 5 of, chapter, uh, of Romans, he's talking about this lavish forgiveness that has happened so readily, so easily, so often, just a part of his way of looking at us, so ready, that it would beg the question, so lavish that it would beg the question, we might as well sin freely. Just sin regularly. And the thing is that forgiveness is so apparent and so ready and so just don't worry about it. Just sin freely. And that's why the first verses of chapter six, he has to arrest that particular thought. It says, should we um, I would say, shall we sin? That grace may abound? God forbid. No, that that desire to sin, that sponsor of sin from within us has been dealt with. And so we're not going to just do it freely. But that doesn't negate the fact that His forgiveness is so lavish that you could ask that question. Paul answers the question by, by telling us, no, don't sin. Um, God forbid, by no means, or absolutely not, as some of the scriptures say. So, <clears throat> he was wounded for our transgressions, he was bruised for our iniquities, the chastisement of our peace is upon him, and, his, by, and with his stripes we are healed. And in Ephesians, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near. And going on, for he himself is our peace who has made the two one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. The dividing wall of hostility was our sin. He's destroyed that. He's rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of his Son, in whom we have redemption and the forgiveness of sins. Let's go on. Um, for the sake of time, let's go to the second one. How does he remedy that second problem? The second problem is that I'm a sinner. And there is, this really, brothers and sisters, this really is the most exciting part of this whole message that we're talking about this morning. It's the foundational reality of our redemption, who we have become. Not only, you know, we sing that song sometimes. Um, only a sinner saved by grace. Nice song. Theology is kind of questionable. 
Okay? I realize that there's some truth to that song because that's what we were. But Paul never addresses the churches and the Christians in all of his epistles as to the saints or to the sinners saved by grace at Ephesus. To the sinners saved by grace at or to the sinners who become redeemed at Corinth. He doesn't say that. In every book, Corinthians, called to be saints, all the saints he's talking to, Ephesians, to the saints, Philippians, to the saints, Colossians, to the saints, for the firstborn, of the firstborn. He's, brothers and sisters, we have been changed from sinners to saints. That's what took place in that septic tank becoming a pressure tank. So, what, how does he fix this? This is the most important part of this whole salvation experience. I am reborn. I am reborn. I have been born again. I am of a new species. I have new DNA. Jesus is my spiritual predecessor. I am in the ancestral line of, of Jesus. I am a saint. I am a new creature in Christ. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. And so we, we can rest in a new identity. And young people, I know we struggle with, with these kind of things as we're walking through the struggles and trials of life, but I want you really to catch this. This is so important because if we don't see who we are, we continue to be who we think we are. And there can be a big difference between those two. So as we become children of God, and we're born of water and of the Spirit. We are born again. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to Spirit. I think feel like we, we should spend this a little bit more. You know, we do not have adoption papers as children in the family of God. We have birth certificates. Now, there's some analogies that we could work with in relation to adoption. But the reality is, you've been born again. You also have a death certificate. Because you died to the old man. And so you have a death certificate and you have a birth certificate. I have two files in my office. One's death certificates of those in my family. And the other is birth certificates. Every one of you have a death certificate and you have a birth certificate. You've been born again. You have a new DNA. You have a new ancestral line behind you. And that one is going to last for eternity. The death certificate that ended your, your um, serving of the flesh, uh, serving of the old man, that one's gone. That one's finished. That, that ancestral line is finished. Now, we could wrestle with the question, does it come back? And I'm not going to do that today, but today, as a believer, you have both a death certificate and a birth certificate. You've been born again. Colossians chapter 1, verse 22 says, But now He has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through the death to present you holy in His sight without blemish and free from accusation." That's fantastic news. That's fantastic news. Let's look at the the third thing which really relates to these first two where the problem was we had no indwelling Christ and without light and now the light of lights has moved in the Shekinah glory that was there in the Old Testament in the, in the temple in the tabernacle that was covered uh, and was Israel's guiding light. Now that Shekinah glory is in your spirit, it's in your inner room, your inner sanctuary. It's in your holy of holies, and it's speaking to you. You have a harder time sinning today than you did before you were born again. Before you were born again, it just naturally flowed out of you. It was just a part of the way you acted. Today, when you act selfishly, you have all kinds of things that are going on in you. You have to work harder to sin today than you did before. 
because you have to push aside your conscience, you have to push aside the Holy Spirit, you have to push aside your commitments and so forth in order to sin. Because you belong to a different ancestry. You belong to the Lord Jesus Christ, the perfect DNA. And so you've got to push those things aside. And God uses those things to bring us back. Uh, and we'll talk about that in, in our next, um, uh, next part here. Just a few more thoughts. I've become the temple of the Holy Spirit. The Shekinah glory now pierces every corner of my inner sanctuary dispelling all darkness in this central dispatching center of my being. This is the throne room uh, of, of your life. There is no darkness there. No darkness can enter there. You cannot serve God and mammon in this particular part of your life. There's just no way. It's one or the other. Um, God will not... I wish I had more time to talk about this, but the, those two forces are eternally against each other. Satan's forces are selfish forces and God's forces. They will not coexist in the same room. They cannot stand each other. They're, each is working toward the obliteration of the other. And when Jesus comes in, Satan, self, and all that has to go out in the inner circle. That's why we struggle with this next one. We say, well, why am I still struggling so much with the flesh? Um, we're going to have to quickly move on here. Uh, let's skip that song. Fleshly desire. Fleshly desire is something that we are still wrestling with as Christians, and that's why I'm really looking forward to spending more time talking about uh, about this in the next few days. Uh, let's see where I'm at. Fleshly desire. Why do I still struggle with Baal worship? You know, we, we look at Israel. Why are they constantly struggling with Baal worship? Why do you still struggle with Baal worship? Baal worship was just their pornography. The same thing. Why do I still worship in the high places? They had a horrible time getting rid of the high places. Different times the kings were would get rid of all the different things, but they left the high places. They left them there. And they kept, I think Josiah was the only one that actually got rid of them. Or maybe it was Hezekiah. I'm not sure which one of those guys it was. But very few of the kings actually got rid of the, of the high places, even though they were a, a, a king that did that which was right in the eyes of God. They still had the high places around. Why do we still have our high places? Why are we still struggling with the, things like uh, jealousy and bitterness and avoidance? And it's this. It's in this category. This category of fleshly desire. And what we want to develop this week is the fact that Jesus weakens this it's not immediately uh, obliterated in our life, but Jesus weakens evil desire. He renders them inoperative as we go on with Him. It's a process of cleansing us, going from one level of glory to another level of glory to another level of glory. Going from glory to glory is even as by the Spirit of the Lord. So our evil desires are in the process of being redeemed. And if we don't understand this, we may feel, oh, I'm not a Christian. I'm still struggling with all this. No. You may be a believer, and that's why you're aware of this, and you're struggling with it, because it's going against who you are. You've become a, a follower of Jesus Christ, and this stuff just feels so uh, wrong, and it should. But you feel that it's wrong because of who you are. If you were still serving self, this stuff wouldn't feel that wrong. Feel like it's, you know, it's just everybody else is doing it. Excusable. Through, uh, though evil desire will never be entirely eradicated in our life, they will be overcome by good desires, by sanctified desires. So we will move from one level of glory to greater levels of glory by the power of the Holy Spirit. Fleshly desires are being redeemed. Again, we need to keep moving here, but God is cleansing our consciences from acts that lead to death. Isn't that wonderful? He's cleansing our consciences from acts that lead to death. He's talking to the believers. And I love this in, in Hebrews chapter 10, 
where it says, because by one sacrifice he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. You are being made holy as a believer. It's not like we have holiness in its perfection. We're being made holy. And because of that, God sees you and I as perfect, even though we're still in the process. Okay? In... Um, Romans chapter 6, verse 6. Knowing this, that the old man is crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin. When we became a believer, we changed our DNA, we changed our ancestral, we changed who we are. The whole thing is done by, by Christ in transforming us from a septic tank to a, a pressure tank. That septic tank, who we were before, is called the old man. It's the old man. And he's crucified with Christ. That the body of sin, the body of sin, I personally believe, is the flesh. This this uh, fourth category that we're talking about, that we're wrestling with, as Christians even. It says that the body of sin might be destroyed. It's current, ongoing action. Might be destroyed that henceforth we should not serve sin. NIV says it this way, For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. And the, um, the world, or New Testament translation says, This we know, that our old self was nailed to the cross with him in order that our sinful nature might be deprived of its power so that we should no longer be the slaves of sin. So, by becoming believers, by crucifying the old man, burying him, and being born into a new man, now we have the potential to deal with the fleshly things. We didn't have that potential before. Now we do. We can work with that, uh, with the Spirit in overcoming that. New American Standard Bible, 95 edition says, Knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. This is the ongoing work of the, of the Lord. Um, this old man is our former identity. The body of sin is that residual um, fleshly desires that are still being cleansed out of your soul. It, these fleshly desires are not a part of your spirit. No sin can live where Jesus lives, where God is enthroned. So that's a perfect environment. That's why God can say, be ye perfect even as I am perfect. Because you can be perfect in your spirit because that's where Jesus lives. There's no blemish there. But the blemishes of the flesh are in the soul. It's the way we think, the way we feel, and the way we decide. And that's where Jesus walks out of the inner sanctuary, the bedroom, as it were, of our, our lives, and comes into our souls, and that's where he's cleansing. And he's building things of beauty, works of righteousness, as well as cleansing out the works of the flesh. So that's his, his work today in your life, in my life. It's ongoing work. Um, we are absolutely helpless to deal with the body of sin before the old man is taken out. Because he's the one who sponsors all that. Once he's gone, now the Spirit can deal with the body of sin or the flesh that's in us. It's only in the absence of the old man that God can begin to remove the body of sin. All right, we have about two minutes here. Um, and I'd just like to open up for a few questions. Let me just jump back to this. When Jesus is in the inner sanctuary of, the, of our lives, then... He begins to change the way we think, the way we decide, and the way we feel. Uh, Jesus comes out of the inner sanctuary. He cleanses our soul, creates works of beauty and holiness. Um, so that's the work that we'd like to talk about uh, throughout the rest of the week. Jesus taking control, becoming bigger and bigger, overcoming all the, the fleshly desires. The fifth problem is um, that of decaying body. Well, Jesus says we're going to receive a new one. Bear, aren't you glad we're going to get a new body? Absolutely. Yes. <clears throat> he says we'll get a new body like unto his glorious body. 
and has not been given any pain, no weakness, no sickness, a new body in heaven. And <clears throat> he's going to change our vile body into uh, his glorious body. <clears throat>